Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm hosting Indivisible this evening from Minnesota Public Radio. On Thursdays, I examine the idea of American identity. And tonight, I want to talk about what it really means to be middle class in America. And here are a few things to think about as we start the conversation. The income inequality in America is both shrinking and pushing on the middle class. Pew Research found that in our top metropolitan areas, the opposite ends of the income spectrum grew. So, More upper-income Americans, more Americans moving into upper-income levels, and more lower-income Americans. And here's something else to take note of. The gap between what upper-income families have and the rest of America is widening sharply. More detail on that in a minute. As our guests join us to talk about this, I'd like to hear from you, and, and maybe you'll think about it in this frame. What's the experience of being middle class in America like today? And I think it would be valuable to hear about middle class life in small towns and big cities in the South, in the East and the Midwest. How does being middle class mean that you live day to day? See, I think your experience with this is going to be very important to informing the conversation. So here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. You can find me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use that hashtag, Indivisible Radio. Again, looking for your words and your experience on what it means to be middle class in America today and looking for that life experience. And I want to hear from a lot of different people in a lot of different parts of the country, the East, the Midwest, the South, the North, 844-745-8255, and then on Twitter, at Carrie MPR is in Minnesota, and then use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest tonight, Lisa Cook, is an associate professor of economics at Michigan State University, and she joins us tonight from East Lansing, Michigan. And Lisa, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Ganesh Sitaraman is with us. He's an associate professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School, and he's author of the new book, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. And he's with us tonight from Bloomington, Indiana. And Ganesh, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Lisa, I want to come back to that distance that I mentioned that's been growing between the wealth that upper income families possess and what middle class Americans have. Now, I Let's acknowledge there have always there's always been an upper class, upper income class in America. But why have middle class Americans, Lisa, lost so much ground in the last eight or nine years? And what does it mean for the middle class? Well, there there are several uh, factors that have contributed to that. Um, The leading factor has been technological change. Uh, There has been a decline in the real minimum wage. 
there's been a decline in unionization um, and to a certain extent uh, international trade, uh, rising immigration. Uh, so, and that's that's the smallest factor, actually. Uh, just about five percent of uh, experts say that uh, immigration is uh, part of the uh, part of the mix. So, all of these factors have been happening, have been at play for decades. So, it's not in that sense. It's it's not new. We've gotten a lot of recent focus on it, and certainly the Great Recession has focused our attention, as you uh, probably know. Uh, the median wealth of a middle class family between fell between uh, 2001 and 2013 to the tune of 28%, you know, nearly wow. a third, more than a quarter. So this has been brought into stark relief for Americans, but they've had a sense for a long time that they have not been doing as well as they were doing before, not doing as well as their parents were doing. So uh, while the sentiment is uh, not new, it was brought into sharp focus during and following the Great Recession. Ganesh, we will get calls from people saying, well, what's your definition of the middle class? And and can I say that economists broadly define it as between $42,000 and $125,000 for a family of three? Is that a definition you'd go with, too? Well, I think the definition of the middle class is one that's that's hard because it changes based on time. It changes based on context in terms of the, the country, the circumstances, even within our own country, uh, depending on where you live, uh, what, you know, how much a dollar uh, gets you can change in different places. Um, but, you know, I think if we're going to put a dollar figure on it, uh, something in that range uh, is, is a reasonable number in the sense that many economists uh, and other and studies tend to rely on a number in that range. And will you also speak to why, as as noted, that we have always had Americans who outpaced other Americans on income, why the middle class feels so distant from the upper income class today? Well, I think the answer is because it is. Uh, and, you know, we can see this in the data in rising inequality over time. And, and you mentioned and, and Lisa mentioned the, the data from the last uh, couple of decades. But really, the change has been happening over uh, multiple decades uh, in the last part of the 20th century. And what we've seen really since the, the late 70s is an increasing share of wealth going to the richest 1% uh, of Americans. Uh, in about 1976, the top 1% of Americans took home about 8 and half percent of national income. Uh, today, that's more than 20 percent that they take home. Uh, so you see this real shift moving to the people at the very, very top. And I think that in reality does create a distance between the wealthiest people in this country and, and everybody else. And, and, and one thing I would just add to Lisa's comments as we're talking about the causes of rising inequality and the squeeze on the middle class and the shrinking middle class mm-hmm. is public policy. You know, things like globalization, technology, all these other kinds of changes uh, don't just happen in a vacuum. They happen in part and are shaped by uh, either the presence or absence of, of laws because it's through our legal system that we structure our society and our economy. Uh, and so policy changes that we've made over the last generation, I think, have really uh, impacted the, the shrinking fortunes of the middle class as well. well. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Cole in Stanford, Connecticut. Hi, Cole. You're up first. And I really appreciate you calling. Tell me about yourself. Well, um, I'm 23 years old. I work in uh, marketing and advertising. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really honestly pretty convinced if the trends continue that 
I won't have the same kind of life that my parents had, you know, as a middle class citizen. What what makes you believe? Um, did you say you will not have the kind of life that your parents yes, had? Yes, I, I believe that firmly. I think that, um, you know, it was funny. I remember talking to my dad about paying for college, and he asked me, how come you can't pay for college yourselves the way that I did? And I showed him, you know, in, uh, the cost of college has risen so much over, you know, our lifetimes um, compared to even, you know, to say the uh, minimum wage, uh, you know, that's a big factor. I also uh, recall, if I correctly, um, that a majority of the GDP growth in this country goes to the 1% of Americans. Um, that was something you guys had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think the rich just keep getting richer in this country and, uh, you know, at the expense of everyone else. You know, Cole, I'm really glad you mentioned your parents because, Lisa, I, I think um, – I don't know what the data will tell us about this, but I think when you measure where you are economically, it's a very natural thing to say, you know, my parents educated me and sent me out into the world. The idea is that I will I'll do better economically than they did. And a lot of Americans, as with coal, do not feel that they're going to have that experience. No, that's 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 right. I mean, I think that this is um, a a long-standing but uh, increasing sentiment in America. And I think that the social compact, especially since the end of World War II, was that the the government and public policy, as Ganesh was saying, uh, this would help the middle class um, every uh, succeeding generation do better than the preceding generation. And I think that there has been enough stagnation in wages, um, enough despair uh, that we see in, for example, manifested in the opioid uh, addiction and death crisis, that um, this is not coming to fruition and the economy is, is, is not working for the middle class like it used to, especially for the middle class that was high school educated. And I, I think that this is uh, this is the gap that exists and is growing. I'm really glad you mentioned education. We'll come back to that. But I think a lot of our listeners are talking about what it's as with coal, what it is going to cost to educate so that you can you can rise into the middle class. And here's Charlie in Cambridge, Wisconsin. Hi, Charlie. Hi, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. What are you thinking about? So my, Well, my family is firmly middle class. We have three children, so we're a family of five. We fall into that income range you recently described. And we had to make a lot of hard choices. Uh, we had to choose to have one of us be a stay-at-home parent, and both my husband and I have master's degrees. Mm-hmm. We've had to choose to be in a smaller house, drive used cars. We have very little retirement savings, and we have no savings for our kids for college. And we don't see a way out of that, which means our kids will end up with student loans, which is just going to perpetuate the problem because that's what put us in the situation that we're in. Charlie, our, our Cole, our first caller, talked about this idea of kind of constant anxiety even though, you know, your paycheck says you're in the middle class. Do you feel that, too? Absolutely. All it takes is one illness or one injury. And, um, you know, we try and have a three-month emergency fund, but with three boys, you kind of dip into that more regularly than you'd like. And so it is a constant state of of anxiety. Absolutely. Really glad you called, Charlie. Thank you. Ganesh, what do you hear in that? She talked about health care and education and, you know, trying to be as live as modestly as they can on a middle class income. You know, I think I think both Cole and Charlie um, get at something that's 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 
happening all over the country. And that is uh, and, and, you know, for me, at least, uh, I think is just so tough for so many families, um, the kind of insecurity and anxiety that you have when you don't have uh, the ability to pay for college or, you know, as she even said, have savings for, for your kids for college or a rainy day fund uh, is really challenging, not just economically, um, but psychically, physically, morally, uh, in terms of just your hope and optimism for the future. Uh, but, you know, on all of these counts, you know, what's really happened, I think, is that as a policy matter, we've shifted a lot of the costs and burdens onto individuals uh, and, and away from uh, our common good. Uh, and that's what we do as a government. A government's just uh, we the people acting through our democracy. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about education, there was there was a time we, we invested heavily in land-grant colleges mm -hmm. starting in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. After World War II, the GI Bill sent a generation to college. We had the National Defense Education Loans in the 50s to try to push people to college. And as college costs have gone up, partly what, you know, has happened uh, is a lot of states have cut back on their spending in education uh, instead of investing to try to keep up with that. And that just shifts the burden uh, over to students, to borrowers, to, to middle-income people who are trying to use education uh, as a way up and, and are, and are hardworking. And I think we see that there. And I think we see it in a lot of these other areas uh, as well. You know, stagnant wages, uh, the challenge of saving for retirement, uh, the rising cost of health care. Um, so I think there's a lot of sectors like this, and, and this afflicts a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, Ganesh just really anticipated something. I, I wanted to connect what people are saying about student loans and economic anxiety to policy. I mean, as you've both started out the conversation saying is, this stuff does not happen in a vacuum. And as in the Midwest, and as in where you both are in Michigan and Indiana, and in a lot of places, as he suggests, states decided they did not have the money to invest in higher education the way they had been. And that really meant that middle class families were going to feel it. That's right. That's right. And I, I'm glad you phrased it that way. They decided that they didn't have the money. It's not that they didn't have the money. <laughs> That's how they prioritized their spending. So I'm at a land grant college. I'm at the oldest land grant uh, university. And certainly we have seen the mix of students change quite dramatically since the beginning of the Great Recession. Our, our students are going to, uh, many of the students who would be characteristically uh, going to Michigan State University have now sought other uh, cheaper universities to attend or community college to attend. And uh, these are people who were turning from places who would have gone to places, say, in other states that were affordable at one point, um, but because of rising student debt, they decided to stay home. And this is, I mean, there's a crisis that is uh, multifaceted, and the middle class is just uh, at the at the at the center of it. And this is just a tax. Uh, uh, the the burden, as uh, Ganesh was saying, uh, the burden has been shifted to these families. They have been uh, taxed rather than the taxpayers. And this is a public good. This human capital is a public good. I mean, it's it's just like the public in infrastructure that is uh, declining. You know, this is a regressive tax of the middle class. People have to get to work some way. But if their bridges are falling, their cars are having to be repaired on the spot, 
Um, and if we uh, listen to, I think her name was uh, Charlie, mm-hmm. who right. was talking about the car repairs, you know, having not enough money set aside for, uh, you know, a major car repair or something like that. This could be uh, a job killer if you couldn't get to work because of uh, that kind of lack of public investment. Matthew says on Twitter, middle class in America today means you're one major illness away from losing it all. Boy, when we talk about policy connected to this, that's health care policy. Mary Ruth says on Twitter, being a middle class millennial means making a decent salary, but having crippling student loan debt. Steph says uh, it means buckets of guilt every time I eat out, even though I know that's not the real economic problem in the U.S. And then uh, Mr. DJ says, how's the definition of middle class altered by student debt? Boy, I'm hearing a lot about student debt here on Twitter. 80K without loans is very different than with uh, a middle class income. Back to the phones here to Ashley in Lombard, Illinois. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for waiting. Oh, thank you so much. I really love this program. Um, I'm glad you called. I probably I'm going to echo what Charlie said. My husband and I make over $100,000 a year combined. We both work full-time jobs, and we live paycheck to paycheck because of student loan debt. My house is very small, and my mortgage and my home or my uh, student loan debt is the same payment every month. So he had to actually take a second part-time job to pay for my daughter to go to preschool. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Do you do you feel, uh, Ashley, one of the things we've heard from a couple of our other callers is just kind of a gnawing anxiety about this? I mean, do it's you feel, yeah, go crippling ahead. because I'll talk to someone who doesn't have student loan debt and they're like, well, I don't understand why you can't do this or why you can't, you know, why your kids aren't in more activities. There's a lot of like pressure for, you know, once they get older to do things and it all costs money and I can't afford to do that. And it's really difficult for me. Like we can't go on big vacations. We also both drive like eight year old cars and I'm hoping the timing belt lasts. Like <laughs> this is how it works. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the call, Ashley. Thank you. You're listening to Indivisible tonight. And on Thursday nights, as you know, if you listen in, I talk about identity. Tonight, it is what is the experience of being middle class in America like today? Ganesh Sitaraman is with us. He's just out with a new book called The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. And Lisa Cook is with us. She studies these economic issues. She's an associate professor of economics at Michigan State University. I want to hear from you in a lot of different places tonight about what day-to-day life is like, what it means day-to-day in your own, at your kitchen table, in your own backyard, and big picture, too, your aspirations and your ambitions, what it means to be middle class in America. This is Indivisible. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, hosting Indivisible tonight from Minnesota Public Radio and talking about the middle class in America. And Ganesh, I, I want to talk a bit about this before we go back to the to the callers here, who I think have really been excellent. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you link the diminishing middle class to this perception that was encouraged and discussed quite often on the campaign trail by Donald Trump when he was running for president, that the economy and our political system is rigged. Where's the connection between a shrinking middle class and this perception that the economy is rigged? So I think there's a, a really important connection, and it's not just uh, you know the president um, who during his campaign focused on this. It was also Bernie Sanders on well, the other right. side of the political spectrum. Right. Uh, so I think there's a general consensus really in the country that the system is rigged, and and the reason why this connects to the to the middle class uh, is that when you have an economic system that concentrates wealth in the hands of a small number of people and big corporations, what that does combined with our political system is allows them to influence policy through campaign contributions, lobbying, right. and lots of other forms of influence. And what that means is that you get policies then that respond to the interests of the wealthiest people. Uh, those policies then allow those people to get more wealth, and then they just use that wealth to influence more policies. And so it creates this vicious cycle. Uh, one commentator has called it a doom loop of oligarchy mm. that where there's a reinforcement of the wealthy and then the policies that support their privileges. And that's a real problem for a society that's supposed to be a representative democracy, a republic, because we need to have policies that re represent all of our people, not just the wealthiest in our society. You know, Lisa, this probably partially explains why we see such diminished trust in institutions and everything from you know, government to churches to higher education. Where where does this where does that fit in? Do you think? No, I think you're exactly right. And when there is the complaint being aired that the economy is no longer working for the middle class, that these institutions are no longer uh, providing the kinds of protections they did in the past, certainly there's 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 something. Uh, to that. So, for example, uh, the healthcare system is an institution. And I think that if we uh, think about how, how broken it was before uh, the ACA and uh, the kinds of things, uh, the kinds of amenities that people need now. Uh, so, just to be uh, perfectly clear, uh, let's say, mental health support or addiction support. And what we see in the ACHA uh, right now being proposed, uh, especially for 50 to 54-year-olds, where the death crisis is at its maximum, especially for, for whites, this is being taken away. The protections are being taken away. And they, it's being proposed that they be taken away. So you can imagine that that, of course, people would be less trustful because this is the population that needs uh, needs protection, and the safety net seems to be eroding for them. And it used to be 
companies that took care of this, that used to supply uh, uh, health care, used to support health care, and used to be able to get that with a high school education. And uh, things have uh, dramatically changed as uh, the burden has been shifted to individuals. So they don't have companies and firms anymore. The government isn't uh, protecting them as they might have in the past or filling the gap where uh, companies have retreated. You know, I think what you're saying about what the, how the role of large companies, our employers, have changed is a good fit with Michael in Georgia Michael, I, I think what part of your background is you work for a large corporation or you did? Yes, ma'am. I, I, I still do. And I have for 20 years a, a defense contractor and and it's a very large defense contractor. And it's it's quite a successful company uh-huh. um, in, term, in terms of sales. And and the what the frustrating part for me, if that's the question about the middle class, is that I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I've got the, the degree, so does my wife. Um, raising the family, I'm not spending a lot of money on things that's frivolous. I'm, I'm sitting in a $5,000 car I paid cash for, so <laughs> I, I own it. Don't have a lot of bills, but the problem is is that everything is going up except for my paycheck. And eventually, the math just doesn't work because you, you can't – if your paycheck doesn't go up with inflation, then it's, it's, it's not going to work. But – there's plenty of money in the corporation because <clears throat> I work in the finance department as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I I see I see the money coming in, and we have record years just about every year. Yeah. And and I see the money coming in, and I go, well, mm-hmm. that's great. And I know how much the upper management, the VP level and up makes, and I go, well, that's great. And and you give me the thanks and everything, but thank you. I can't deposit a thank you. I, I get awards. I get all this great stuff and they love my work. I'm very talented, but it doesn't translate into something I can deposit to feed my family. And and mm-hmm. Michael, I mean, what is the, is there an explanation from the company when you see productivity rising and you see profits rising and the employees aren't sharing in that? What is the explanation for that? I have asked that question. I asked them, I said, what do the figures need to be in order for us to see something better than a 1% raise? And the answer I got was you will probably never see anything more than that for the near future, as far as we can tell. And this was from a vice president. So that's what frustrates me. And, I, and I'm, I'm the, the black sheep in the network, I can tell you that. But I can tell you that it's, I, I do study these things, thousands of pages of notes on this. And I and I just look at them and I think their their main objective is to get people as cheaply as they possibly can, irregardless of whether the system is going to fail or not, mm-hmm. the, the things that we do. Because I have a feeling the people that make these decisions, what I've seen at this, corpor- at this corporation, is that they'll leave or move on when everything fails after they've cut everything. And I've mm-hmm. seen that happen over and over again. It's so frustrating. I worked so hard to do this, and then I, I don't get rewarded for it. I, I am really grateful to have your call, Michael. Um, Ganesh, this is, the, this is the infuriating part of wage stagnation as we've come out of this recession. And some people in this economy are seeing the rewards of it, but a lot of people aren't. Yeah, you know, one thing that I think is, is really important for everyone to, to, to notice across, uh, you know, a few of our callers, Charlie, Ashley, and Michael now, is first, people out there are trying really hard. They are doing everything right. They are 
saving pennies every place they can uh, and feeling guilty when they don't save that penny. Uh, this is not a case of, you know, profligate spenders uh, buying, you know, dozens of iPhones or something. Uh, these are people trying really hard. And I think that's 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 really virtuous of, of all of our callers so far. But but the second part, I think that's really important is there are choices being made, choices by the upper management at Michael's defense contractor, choices in our government, whether it's, you know, the education department withdrawing protections for student loans uh, on servicers uh, just uh, maybe it was last week. Um, You know, these are choices that people are making at these high levels. And I think that part of the problem and part of what we need to do is really take, um, you know, take aim at the choices that people are making and say that they don't represent the values of the country that we that we want to be, the country that we've been uh, and and the country that we want to have for our kids in the future, because that's the only way we get change. You know, uh, we don't have to have a system where Michael works hard and doesn't get a raise. Um, we, we can do more to fix that by changing incentives at the corporate level so that uh, people don't have the incentives to focus just on short-term profits but can invest more in the long term, try to disaggregate some of that. And I think that may help our, our economy as a whole, and it will certainly help people um, who are working hard, doing everything right, and still can't make it work. All right, right. And if I can just add one thing, yeah. I, I thought – uh, this is really perceptive, the way um, Michael put it. Uh, you know, people have a sense of fairness. And whether the distribution of economic resources in the economy is fair. So with this greater inequality that we see and that he has affirmed that he's done uh, research on, this can foster resentment and it can lead to lower worker productivity. For example, you know, he could say at this defense contractor or, or others, other workers in the economy might say, why should I work so hard if I'm not being fairly rewarded and I see the concentration of wealth at the top with the CEOs and the CEO is making, you know, hundreds uh, or a hundred times or more uh, than I am. And that could be detrimental, poisonous to the economy. And we have the sense Everybody has a sense that the a, a distribution of income can be inherently uh, unfair, and they're doing everything they can to be able to move up a ladder that they just don't see changing. As you think about what it means to live day to day as a middle class American, wherever you are, I've said I want to hear from you. If you're living in the in the east, in the south, midwest, wherever, I think I, I think your experience in different parts of the country are, are really informing the conversation tonight. The number, if you get a busy signal, try us back. The number is eight four four seven four five eight two five five, and I'm on Twitter at Carrie uh, K E R R I M P R as in Minnesota, and then use that hashtag Indivisible Radio. Keith says. Being middle class means working insane hours to stay afloat with little free time or extra money to use on really living. To Callie in Pittsburgh. Hey, Callie. Hi. Oh, no, I'm Callie in Emerson, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Well, good to have you on the line. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I live in Bergen County, New Jersey, Uh which is not too far from New York City. And my husband and I are both in our 50s, high school graduates. No college, Uh blue collar, Mm -hmm. union workers. And and, I was making $10 an hour 25 years ago in my 
the job that I just retired from. The same people in the same position in the same company are now getting 925. Wow. 30 oh, years later. Oh, my God. The recession hit, and everybody, oh, they wanted to tighten their belt because they didn't want to go bankrupt. We got that. We gave up personal days. We all gave up a, a free day to save the company. And then after that, when it recovered, they're screwing th- their workers. I'm working with people that get promoted. When I went from part-time to full-time, I went from 7 to $10 in 1987. Wow. And in 2017, these same people are going from 725 to 925. Lisa, something yeah. has to give here on this wage stagnation, doesn't it? No, it does. It does. And I I think that the kind of uh resentment that I was uh mentioning before and the the morale that uh that can suffer as a result of people having this deep sense of fairness uh people all all people not just um the ones we've heard uh call in all people having the sense of fairness uh, certainly something's got to give at some point um and people will will just stop working stop putting forth the effort because effort is what was being rewarded in 1970 uh, or in 1980, we've seen uh, productivity slow down uh, recently, but the minimum wage has not kept up with productivity gains. So, yes, yeah, something something has got to give. And and for example, if we don't um, increase the minimum wage, we will be subsidizing many of the uh, low wage workers uh, for for uh, the the near future. Say through welfare, or I'm, I'm sorry, not through uh, welfare, through food stamps, through uh, Medicaid, and so on. So uh, it seems better incentive wise to uh, raise their pay rather than to uh, subsidize them uh, another way. Subsidize the corporations, actually. Right, Ganesha. I'm curious about what you think about something that Richard Florida. He's got a new book out. He's an urban theorist, um, and he's been talking about the service economy and how many Americans are in the service economy, in the middle, struggling to stay in the middle class through the service economy, and what the what the answer to that is. Listen to what he had to say on Morning Edition. As a country, we really spent time and money making manufacturing jobs good jobs. We increased the wages so that people who worked in factories could buy the cars and consumer durables coming off the assembly lines. The only way we're going to build a middle class today is to make sure the service workers, 70 million strong, more than roughly half of our workforce, that they have jobs that are middle class jobs. And right now they're sinking further and further behind. Ganesh, what, do you agree with him? And what's the answer to that? You know, I think there's a lot a lot to that and a lot to, um, you know, an, an important piece of that is exactly what the caller mentioned, which is unions. You know, when we were coming out of World War II, uh, there was a model that a lot of historians called the Treaty of Detroit. And the idea behind the Treaty of Detroit uh, was that car companies, in the main case it was GM, was going to get together with the unions and they worked together to increase wages for people in the union uh, who worked at the auto plants. Um, and, and the company provided benefits as well. And this was good for everyone, the, the union and the workers' 
benefited and the company benefited by having a great number of workers who had the kind of wages that could build America's middle class. And in this period after World War II, the cooperation between labor and management and the pattern of the Treaty of Detroit spread throughout the economy. And this really helped build our middle class in, in that in that period of time. You know, what's really happened in the last 30, 40 years is we've seen the active attempts to dismantle unions uh, and on, on the one side. And then on the other side, we've seen a lot of corporations that are less interested in building the middle class through their own employees right. and more interested in getting the kind of low levels of, of labor costs down. Uh, and there's competitive reasons for that. There's legal reasons. There's other reasons for that as well. But, you know, I think we really need to get back to a place where everybody sees that we're in this together and that we need to have a stake in everyone in our country succeeding. Um, and that is actually going to be good for both business and it's going to be good for workers in the middle class, too. Uh, I want to get a call in here from Jessica in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Jessica. Uh, tell me a little bit ab about yourself and what it means to be middle Hi class. Hi. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I was calling because um, I'm listening to your show and um, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about student debt. I'm 27 years old. Um, people, all the people in, uh, in the workplace that are my age and in my station in life, um, many of them are going um, through these same struggles about um, crippling student loan debt and how they can't move forward in their life um, with that big payment. I don't have a huge ton of student loan debt. Um, I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. I went to the school in town, Youngstown State University, go mm -hmm. Penguins. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't have a whole ton of debt because of things like the Pell Grant. I was a first-generation college student, and at the time there was more state investment um, I had Ohio College Opportunity Grants that's been slashed in half here in Ohio. Um, and, you know, I, I made it. I got a bachelor's degree. I have a decent job. Um, and it's because of public investment. I depended on Medicaid at that time. I was uninsured. Um, we have Medicaid expansion now. If we didn't, um, that would be, you know, maybe I wouldn't have made it to that next semester because mm -hmm. I didn't have um, the health care to to fall back on. Um, so mm -hmm. this is the reason why we need public investment. You want people like me who are on the cusp to uh, push on and be able to succeed and be self-sufficient. If you go cutting those um, public investments like the Pell Grant and uh, student loan debt repayment and things like that, you're, you're just, you're keeping people down. You're perpetuating the cycle. And Boy. It, you Jessica, want to be self-sufficient. I am so glad you called because I, I think we we've mentioned a few things about public investment here, but I really want to zero in with Ganesha and, and Lisa about what makes a difference. I think we've heard a bit about the minimum wage. We've heard about investing in in college and you know keeping tuition low. So we'll talk about some other solutions. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
I'm Carrie Miller, uh, and we are talking about what it means to be middle class in America. And uh, I focus on identity. And so this conversation tonight, informed by your experience, wherever you live, about what it means day to day to be middle class. Uh, Ganesh Sitaraman with us tonight. He has uh, is out with a new book called The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. And Lisa Cook with us, an associate professor of economics at Michigan State University. If you're just getting in on the discussion, here's the number 844-745-8255. Be persistent. Lots of calls, busy signals. Call me back. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Indivisible Radio. And you can keep the the tweet's coming because I read them all uh, after the show. Ganesha, I wanted to ask you about this before we go back to the, the phone lines here. You, When you talk about solutions in your book, one of the things that worries you a lot is economic elites running the government. But, but of course, President Trump campaigned telling a lot of audiences, I'm really rich. No one can buy me. That's what my riches protect me from. And and I he persuaded many Americans that that he had their economic economic interests at heart too. How did that happen? And and what does it mean that now he has, you know, brought in a lot of other economic elites into his administration? Well, you know, I think the challenge that we have is that it turns out, and political scientists have shown this, that the wealthiest people in our society systematically have different preferences than everybody else. And that doesn't mean you aren't going to find some people who have similar preferences to the general population. There's obviously going to be some. But by and large, they have different preferences, and they tend to have preferences that support their own interests. So wealthier people tend to care less about public education because they send their kids to private schools, just less uh, relevant to them. They're more interested in tax cuts for themselves and for wealthy people, less interested in regulation, even though it might be protective for, for the general public. Uh, and, and those are problems because it skews our policies in ways that help the wealthy instead of helping the general population. I think the challenge that we have in politics right now when we talk about the system being rigged or, or even wealthy people who say that they can't be bought is that the it's not just about bribery or campaign funds. It's actually much more systematic than that, where we have you know, people who spend all their time with other uh, elite wealthy people, um, mm-hmm. and they create kind of an echo chamber of their own views, uh, and they're disconnected from the real challenges that face a lot of the people, including you know, many of the callers who have called in tonight. Um, and I think that's a real problem. And, and the way to break that is – you know, to find people who actually care about the substantive policies that are going to make a real difference. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have good rhetoric, but it's another thing to really fight for the things policy-wise that that really matter. And I think that's that's where we need to go in the future. And I really think there's no way we'll be able to make economic progress unless we also address the political problems that we have in our system. And that's campaign finance, it's lobbying, it's the revolving door uh, of, of people kind of going back and forth in and out of the very industries they're supposed to be regulating. Um, unless we address those kind of things as well, it's going to be very hard to make progress. Let me grab a call here from Tyler in Philadelphia. Hey, Tyler, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Tell me a bit about yourself. So I, I, I'm concerned about have, ensuring the, a future for my kids that my, my parents did when I grew up. So going into college, I knew that I would get – take on student loan debt. So I went to community college, got my associates, went to a four-year, graduated, 
uh, moved back to my parents, paid what else I had owed, and mm -hmm. then was able to build a career. And I'm on my own, and I'm making a decent wage, but unless I am able to stay flexible and move throughout the country, I don't know if I'll be able to establish myself in one area and make enough money so that I can ensure that my kid is able to have the same upbringing that my parents provide me, if not better. I think it's either going, to, I think it's going to be worse if, because I'm held to one area and, and, uh, and, and I'm not able to grow as far as, as, as a, a living wage. So, so you're, you're saying, Tyler, that you feel like if you wanted to stay in Philly, you you wonder about the kind of economic opportunity, you know, on, on which you could raise a family. I, I take it you don't have children yet. No, no, not yet. But it's it's this this thought has been going through my head as I as, as I get older, and I think, well. You know, do I want to have kids or not? Well, if I do, can I provide? Well, I don't know because of, uh, you know, I, I can't move around. I can't uh, uh, be flexible because, you know, that's not fair to, to, the, to my child if I were to, to have one. Good to have your call. Thank you. I, I want to hear from Sonia in Florida as well. Sonia, what's your situation? And hi. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my situation is highly similar to the gentleman who just uh, ended. I was able to obtain a master's degree. My husband has a, a bachelor's degree working in the healthcare field. We both dedicated ourselves the last 15 years to our career, both first-generation college. Uh, so we were unable to not get our college education without taking on a large amount of super loan debt. We've managed it, uh, but our fear is that the generational jump will stop with us. Uh, because our child is not going to have the benefit of having parents who are normally college educated are able to uh, provide for their educational post-secondary needs, and we're, we're not there. We are, um, I guess, uh, hoping that his straight A's will help him get scholarships and grants and loans without even uh, revealing to him uh, the amount of contribution that we're not going to be able to give to his education. And that's, that's hurtful for us being first-generation college students thinking that we were going to be the generational progression in, right. in, uh, in our family. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for the call. Boy, Lisa, the anxiety around higher education. I mean, even for people like Tyler who don't have kids yet. Right. Right. It's, it's palpable. You know, I think that one of the, one of the things that uh, the caller was just uh, mentioning from uh, Sonia from Florida was just mentioning was that there is uh, not a mechanism uh, that would be able to provide an educational opportunity uh, like uh, she and her husband had. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, the proposal of uh, college uh, for all free f tuition at uh, public universities, I think, needs to be uh, honed and debated seriously. Uh, this was just passed in in New York. Uh, you know, free tuition at uh, at public universities. Right. You know, with some caveats. Um, now, that's not perfect, but that's a starting point. 
And I would I would argue it's not just at public universities that uh, this needs to be the, the the case. That a lot more financial aid needs to be provided uh, through the private university system as well. But that's what it's going to take because families don't have it. This tax has been shifted to them. This this public investment has been shifted to families of those who are going to uh, college or university. And it should be, I think, uh, part of what the government uh, supports, at least supports, because that's a public value. Uh, and if we were in a rich country, uh, in an OECD country and a European country, that wouldn't be as uh, as vociferously debated as it is here. Ganesha, I, I think Sarah on Twitter here makes a good point. She says, uh, we want safety nets, but we're not willing to pay more taxes and tax wealth. And then she adds, 62 will never retire, hope no serious illness. I mean, she has a point here, too, about... Then what Americans say when it is proposed that we spend more money on some of these programs, whether it's investing it in higher education, you know, Pell Grants, that kind of thing. I mean, we're not a people who are eager to step up and say, yes, let's let's uh, pay more taxes. So I think we are uh, really in, in a very in a very specific way. OK, um, we, we are willing to pay to invest in each other and we do it all the time. People all over this country invest in public schools so that their kids can have a better life uh, and they want to make sure the public schools are really good uh, and they're willing to pay taxes to make sure the public schools are good. We are willing to pay for the best military in the world because we understand you don't get something for nothing and that if you want to live in a great and powerful country, you have to pay for it. We are willing to do that uh, in a lot of different sectors and I think one of the things that we need to come back to is just making very clear that we have choices in front of us and we can choose to pay, you know, have the wealthiest people in this country pay less in taxes uh, and we could cut taxes even further for the wealthiest people in the country or we could choose to say we're going to close loopholes, we're going to make people pay just a little bit more, especially people who make extraordinary amounts of money, millionaires and billionaires, and we could use some of that to invest in all of our people. And I think when we pose the choice that way, lots of people actually um, would get behind something like that because I think we do understand as a country that we're, we're in this together and that, you know, I'll add one more thing with this, which is just when you succeed in America, uh, everybody succeeds because we have communities of people that support us. You know, you have parents, but you have neighbors, you have teachers, uh, you have family members. Um, you know, we had a caller earlier who talked about Pell Grants and Medicaid. There's a large community that helps everybody become successful. And part of what happens when you succeed is you should want to give back to that community that nurtured you and helped you be successful and it created the conditions in which you could succeed. And I think when we think about it that way, you know, that's something where even the wealthiest people can understand that um, that they should give back too, and uh, and be willing to pay so that the next kid can have um, get that ladder uh, to climb up themselves. Haley in Indianapolis. Just one second, Lisa. I'll share mm -hmm. this and then I'll come right back to you. Haley mm -hmm. in Indianapolis says, being middle class feels like failure and powerlessness. People like Trump because it seemed like he had money and power. It feels like you're doing something wrong, even though you're not spending frivolously. And then John in North Carolina says, I'm 50 years old. I used to think of myself as middle class, but I just did my taxes. 
and I made 25000 last year. I think health care is the problem. At the university where I work, they said they'd cut executive bonuses, but I just found out that they never did. Lisa, what were you going to add before we go to the phones again? I was just going to say that, um, just to, to echo uh, Grush in, in saying that it is something, these public goods are something that we will pay for. And I'll just give an example. You know, Shirley Franklin in Atlanta uh, was called uh, crazy when she ran for mayor of Atlanta on the notion that she was going to raise people's water bills <laughs> so that yeah. she could replace a sewer system that I think was installed around the time of the Civil War. I mean, it was that old. People not only elected her, they paid it. And the business community was uh, behind her. This was, in effect, a, a tax, um, uh, you know, uh, an effective tax on, on individuals. People will pay for especially good institutions, good outcomes they can see. That's a good, and that good are example. working for them. Yeah. Uh, let me grab a you call know, here from Benjamin in Tennessee. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks so much for waiting. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, tell me about yourself. Well, um, me and my family, me and my wife, we, uh, we have two kids. Mm -hmm. And we live under about $100,000, but me and my wife are both teachers in the public education system. Uh -huh. um, and we really con uh, are concerned about the fact that it seems like our jobs are getting cut all the time. And we're talking about boosting the education system up, but we're now coming up with policies where private schools, funding from the most wealthy students, are going to be diverted from our public schools, thus making the public school system suffer even more. Are you talking about, is there a school choice debate going on, a voucher yeah. system debate going yeah. on in Tennessee at the moment? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just it worries us because with us making the amount we do, we know that when our kids are ready to go to school, we're going to have to burden, or as parents, we feel like we're going to burden their college debt. Mm -hmm. And it really concerns us because we have two children, and with us making what we do, and with both of us having master's degrees, we don't nearly make the income. And oftentimes what we hear from all our friends is, why don't you just quit teaching and do something else that makes more money? Yeah. Uh, good to have the call, Benjamin, and thank you for sharing some of your experience. I, I thought we could also hear from Charlotte in Baldwin, Wisconsin. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So many good comments, lots of great information being shared here. Um, you know, you wanted the daily experience of, of being middle class, mm -hmm. and I'd say we're lower middle class. Um, my husband and I, we have three kids. We live probably on about $80,000 a year. <clears throat> we have a house. We drive used cars. Um, I shop at Goodwill. I'm a bargain shopper. We're a thrift shopper. I wouldn't dare walk into a Macy's or a department store and spend $60 on a shirt. Mm -hmm. um, watching the divide grow between the extremely wealthy and the middle class angers me. And it, I think it, it, it's a psychological effect that happens to all because in America, in the olden days, when you worked hard, you got somewhere. And I, too, benefited at one time from um, our state program, food stamps, Medicaid for my kids while I was going through a divorce. And I am willing to give back. Mm 
However, when you have a salary of $80,000 a year, the amount you can give back is minuscule to what is needed. When you look at the upper CEOs who are making millions and billions of dollars, my bet would be, one, they have never lived a middle class or lower middle class life, and they have absolutely no concept of balancing your checkbook before you go out for the weekend with your kids to see if everybody can get a popcorn, a drink, and a candy at the movie theater. Charlotte, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the show and having a chance to call in. Ganesh, I have about two minutes, but I'd love to hear you on what what our callers have just said, Ben and, and Charlotte. You know, I think for, for a lot of the callers, you know, thinking about how this connects to policy, um, you know, Ben talking about uh, schools and, and public schools, Haley feeling powerless. I think a really big part of what we need to think about is how we can take control back over our society. And I think part of the challenge is uh, is time. But what we need to do is really push at um, getting involved in in politics, getting involved with our elected officials and really using our voice because, you know, the common theme for, for everyone is is people are really struggling and, and it's hard to figure out how to fix it. Well, we can fix it, but we need to put pressure on the people in government to fix it or else it's very, very hard to make change, uh, each of us just acting on our own in our, in our daily lives. So, you know, I would encourage um, all of our listeners out there to think about, you know, how to get active and you can feel powerful by by really working at this through through the political process. Yeah, you're talking about the power in numbers, right? It's all about the power in numbers. You know, it's very, very hard for people in elected office to ignore uh, when all their constituents come to town meetings, when they get active and, you know, these are people who are going to vote. And, and we are the ones uh, in a democracy who decide what our future is going to be. And we need to shape our own destiny. Ganesh, thank you very much. Really great to have your research and your experience in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Lisa, really a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining the discussion tonight. The pleasure's been all mine. And uh, our conversation can continue on Twitter. I read everything you send in to me. Um, and you can tweet me on this topic, on what it means day to day to be middle class, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.